Welcome into 20th and Blake here on the Mile High Sports Podcast Network. I am your host, Drew Creaseman, and as always, I'm excited to be talking Colorado Rockies baseball with you here on the show. Been a little while since we've done this, but there hasn't been a whole lot of news this offseason. That's okay, though. There's about to be some just by the nature of the schedule. A handful of things to talk about, and I've got some questions from the old Twitter machine to get to. So we're going to be jumping around in terms of topics. But of course, we're getting closer and closer to spring training, and so I think we're going to have some news. We're going to have some stuff leading up to that, and we're going to have a lot more podcasts as a result. I won't be have to be out there begging you all for questions in order to come up with content for the time. Been doing plenty of articles and videos out there, but a lot of that tends to be uh, retrospective or things we've already talked about here on the show kind of crystallized. And so wanted to make sure we've got a, a, fresh, a fresh batch, easy for me to say, of topics on the show today. First one comes in from Ben, and I love this question. It says, do the Rockies need to embrace small ball more, especially on the road walks bunts sack hits steals seems seems like the diamondbacks the orioles the marlins who are quote smaller market can do this with success there are a lot of schools of thought on this and i tend to agree with you to a certain extent and i'm going to dive into this fairly deep so if you thought i was going to get to the next question quickly uh, you're in for a shock we're going to be on this one for just a second because it is very complicated and I tend to disagree with what I think is the consensus as I talk to a lot of my colleagues in the media, particularly people who have who've mentioned this publicly on their shows or in their writing or on Twitter or whatnot. Uh, Manny Randawa and Patrick Saunders are two people who I know are very much of the mind, and, and they're not alone. I think they're kind of indicative of, if not a consensus, certainly the, certainly the prevailing theory, right, that the Rockies should kind of try to go back to outslugging teams all the time. It's seen as a sort of going back to the Blake Street Bombers days, right? I've even heard some people, not necessarily those two, but I've heard some people suggest that what they should do is turn off the humidor, get, get rid of the humidor, right? And just go back to being absolutely dominant at home because one of the big numbers, the, the biggest piece of evidence, I think, in favor of this line of thinking is that they just don't win on the road. No matter how good they are through now their 30-year history, right, they haven't ever been a good road team. There's enough evidence to show that it's just going to be difficult for them to win on the road through whatever reason. You know, exactly why that's the case and, and what does the Coors Field hangover effect do? What does it do to pitchers versus hitters? All of that stuff, there's still debate to be had. But it is clear that across the board, the Rockies are worse on the road, right? And so, and for their entire existence. And, and so the, the thinking, the logic is clear, right? If you can't beat them on the road consistently, then you need to dominate at home. You've got to turn Coors Field into a paradise, into a place that teams are scared to come into. And, you know, again, sort of thinking back to the Blake Street Bombers days. Now, there's more to the theory than that, but let me leave it there for now because, like I said, there's a lot to get to here. The biggest reason, well, there are, there are a couple of big reasons why I don't agree with that. One is that I think it's a little bit of purple-tinted glasses, quite frankly, to look back at the 90s as this especially successful time. From 1993 to 2004, the Colorado Rockies only made the postseason one time in 1995, right? It's actually one of their longest dry spells in their history as much as they've been frustrating lately right they obviously had their runs in 07 and 09 and then more recently in 17 and 18 but that's a 
decade, that's an 11-year stretch where they only made it once and got immediately bounced in the wild card round in 1995. Now, they did have winning records just above in 96 and 97. So you had three years in a row there where they had a, a winning mark, right? And they also were selling out every night. And so it felt like the, 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 the team was, I think, a lot better than when you look inside the numbers to some extent that they were, especially when it comes to not necessarily the Bombers themselves who were great, but the offense in general, right? The Blake Street Bombers is four or five guys. You know, one of the years in there, Ellis Burks was hurt and not particularly great. 95, actually, the year that they made the postseason, Ellis Burks wasn't particularly good. And so that team, when you take a look at the numbers, actually was built a lot more like the 2017 and 2018 teams that were really top-heavy in terms of their offense, right? So back then it was Bichette, Walker, Galarraga, Castilla, and Burks if he was healthy. But then you would have this strong drop-off where guys like Walt Weiss, Joe Girardi, uh, you know, EY as much as we love him, and and he's remembered very fondly, right, was never a plus OPS guy, uh, an OPS plus guy. He was not seen as an above-average hitter. Uh, he was seen as a, well, the, conversely, he was seen as a below average hitter. Uh, even the fact that he stole a ton of bases didn't really balance that out because he didn't do it at a particularly efficient clip. In fact, by modern metrics, they would say he was a negative in terms of his base stealing. And and I don't know, you know, again, that, that's all kind of debatable to some extent. The metric people tell you no, it isn't. Uh, but he didn't steal at a particularly great clip. And so you would have... It was very similar to the Rockies' offenses when it was like Charlie Blackman, Trevor Story, Nolan Arenado, DJ LeMahieu, uh, David Dahl is your kind of equivalent. Uh, Ellis Burks was an all-star one year, wasn't even a factor another year because of the injuries, right? But then there was a, a big drop-off. So you had this top-heavy offense. And the biggest thing is that the pitching those years, particularly in 1995, was really underrated. There's an argument to be made that the 1995 bullpen is the best bullpen the Colorado Rockies have ever had, certainly by ERA Plus and innings pitched. Guys like Steve Reed, Bruce Ruffin, Curtis Laskanek threw like 95 innings out of the bullpen that year. was absolutely fantastic. And all five starting pitchers, though none of them were phenomenal, none of them were close to elite, all five of the starting pitchers who got the most number of innings pitched had ERA pluses above 100. So they were above the league average. That is why the 1995 team ended up going to the postseason. When, look, the Rockies had better offenses by league-adjusted OPS plus team offenses in 96 and 97 when they didn't go to the postseason. The reason being that their pitching wasn't as good. So I am of the flip side mind where I think the only time the Rockies have been competitive is when the pitching is, again, it's, it's not necessarily that it's elite. It's that there are a lot of guys pitching pretty well. That tends to be the formula. It did it in 95. It did it in 2007 and 2009 and 17 and 18. All five of the times the Rockies made the postseason, that has been true, right? The offense has been various degrees of pretty good to very good when they actually make it. In fact, you could argue in 17 and 18, the offense wasn't great. And, and like I mentioned, they were very, very top heavy. But I do think to me, the answer is not to run away from the road, because while it's true that they've never had a, a winning season on the road, 
It's also true that their best years, if you look at those five postseason years or years where they've been above 500, tend to coincide with times they've done better on the road. It's hard to see that as improvement. And I think it's one of the reasons why it's not a very popular theory, because some of those years they were still not good on the road. And so it's hard to argue that what you should do is go from awful to not good. But those are all wins, too. Any game you can take from the loss column to the win column is important, right? And for me, I agree, going back to the fact, you remember Ben asked a question like an hour and a half ago about small ball is, I think, one of the best ways to try to mitigate the drastic difference between Coors Field and out on the road. Because while you don't need small ball at Coors Field, and there's absolutely an argument to be made, in fact, it's almost certainly the case that at Coors, you're better not trying to steal bases, not trying to push the issue because someone's going to hit the ball into the gap, somebody's going to hit the ball over the wall, and you're going to be able to get your runs, right? Runs just pile up more there in general, and so you shouldn't be taking a ton of risks. But what happens when you go out on the road and now you're stuck in a 2-1 ball game and you are dealing with the Coors Field hangover effect and your guys who hit a bunch of home runs who rely on being able to see and punish a mistake pitch are missing that mistake pitch because it's day one or two of a road trip and they're just off of it and so they pop it up or they foul it back or maybe they hit a ground ball at 110 miles an hour instead of a line drive or a fly ball at 110 miles an hour. And so you're stuck in this 2-1 game. And in the years, again, where they've been competitive, you're getting good pitching, right? That's what's keeping you in the ball games. You've got to find ways to steal those wins. I think the biggest element of this, like with any strategy, I try not to run too far one way or the other with it. I am very much of the mind that you need all of the things in order to be successful in baseball, including luck. But I do think you've got to lean into whatever your best players do the best. And I think right now, the Rockies do have a lot of guys who are really good athletes, who've got great speed. Obviously, we're looking at Nolan Jones and Brenton Doyle right now. Ezekiel Tovar's got well above average speed. Uh, you're going to be adding guys like Zach Veen, who's a phenomenal base stealer to the mix. You've even got above average athletes at your corner spots with guys like, you know, if Tolia's out there, he's not a great runner, but he's a pretty good runner. Same thing with Ryan McMahon, right? Guys, you don't want sealing a ton of bases necessarily, but maybe stretch going first to third, that kind of thing. That's also a part of, you know, small ball as it were. I think this is changing a little bit also with the new rules, with the bigger bases, with the limited number of pickoffs. We've already seen the stolen bases going up. So I do think that it's something that a team like the Rockies, you know, the the old sayings are defense and speed don't slump. And they kind of can. That's a little bit of a misnomer, but they're much less slumpy than offense can be, right? And, And even than pitching can be. And I think because for me, the singular word that describes the Rockies' unique difficulty when it comes to Coors Field in a way is chaos, right? It just creates chaos. You're going from an extreme environment of one kind to extreme environments of the other. Uh, you're, you're having to deal with a certain amount of injuries that's going to be more at altitude, all of that stuff. And for me, small ball is something that if you're good at it, you should be able to lay down a bunt and move a guy over anywhere. 
right? You should be able to steal a base anywhere, go first to third anywhere. And I do think that it's something that while it's not going to take the Rockies from a bad road team to a good road team, it could be a trick that takes them from an abysmal road team to a road team that's not so bad that it doesn't prevent you from getting into the postseason. And that really, I think, ought to be the goal. So particularly with some of these guys they've got coming up now with the good athletes that they've got, with the speed that they've got, and almost as a way to try to force, especially guys like, and actually this will transition us into our next question, Brenton Doyle, to make a little more contact, right? So AvsFan97 asks, what's the plan at the plate for Doyle next season? He's a lead on the grass and on the bases, but his offensive profile last year gave little hope at the plate. Where does the offense come from him? To finish answering the last question and start answering yours, to begin with, I would like to see a little bit more small ball. And I understand it's difficult when you're looking at a guy who's legitimately 6'5". You know, he's a big, strong dude. It's easy to think because he's such a rangy outfielder that he might be one of those little quick guys, of you know, people that might be looking in and not really paying super close attention. I imagine you all know he's a big kid. And so... Uh, you know, and he and he really does have power. He he hits some pretty monster homers, and he's got opposite field power, right? He had a couple of home runs that, quite frankly, were a little bit like he just swung late on a ball up and away from him, and he's so strong, he managed to power it out up over the high scoreboard and right field at Coors. That's big man strength. That said, just because you've got that doesn't mean you should go up, you know, with his numbers, with his strikeout numbers, with his whiff percentages, his strikeout percent was in the one percentile. That's as low as it gets, right? The very bottom of the league, you're swinging and missing too much. And when you do have that kind of speed, at the very least, you've got to be a threat to bunt. You've got to be, if not trying to, willing to hit the ball on the ground occasionally i know that you know in the modern game they never want you to hit the ball on the ground and look if you stop striking out the ball in the air is it tends to be better right but there's that old willie mays hayes adage of i should find you every time you hit the ball in the air because he does have such good speed uh guys do tend to play back on him because he's got that power and so at the very least bring the the third baseman in uh you know but there there are some things i think that he can do I also think, again, he needs to be looking for the walk a little bit, only at the 8th percentile. And and that, I think, is the biggest thing that he could do. He got himself into a lot of 3-2 counts this year and ended up swinging at the ball in the dirt. Uh, talking to a lot of people in and around the organization, it's clear that his, his biggest issue at the plate is pitch recognition with the mechanics of his swing a little bit. It just takes him a little bit longer to get going. So there could be mechanical adjustments to maybe get him quicker to the ball uh, so that this isn't such an issue. Or he could just really, really work on that eye pitch recognition, be a, a student of the game, study, recognize what pitchers are doing with him. And then you've got to make that mental willingness to, on the 3-2 count, be willing to stand there and look at it. And yeah, every once in a while, you're going to be looking at a fastball at the knees and you're going to be walking back uh, to the plate on on the strikeout looking. But I think he's going to end up drawing a lot more walks if he can be willing to take them. And again, you want this guy on first base. Uh, his uh, converse to what I was saying about EY earlier, uh, Brenton Doyle's 
success rate has been phenomenal so far. You want him on the bases. He's a real true weapon over there. And so I think those are kind of the biggest things. Make a little more contact however you can, especially just add the bunt to the game a little bit. You get a few of them down. You use your speed to get there. Guys are going to start coming in. Then some of these ground balls are going to start getting through. But he's got to make more contact, and he's got to be willing to draw the walk. You show that you're willing to draw the walk. Guys are going to start challenging you a little bit more because you're still a guy who I think isn't going to hit much better than 220, 230 or whatever. But then you're going to start seeing those mistakes and that that's where you could see Doyle become one of those guys who has the really low batting average and the pretty high strikeouts but you know threatens maybe to even hit 20 home runs in a season because he's starting to see enough mistakes but I think in order for that to happen it's got to be the walks the walks have to come first so that's my take on the Brenton Doyle situation Uh, this one's a fun one just sort of a, a general philosophical question that comes from Brooks, who asks, what are bullpen conversations like? What do they talk about? What do they do? Uh, There are several different kinds of bullpen conversations, but I would say broadly speaking, and if there's somebody who's a pitching coach out there who wants to disagree with what I'm about to say, please do so and set me right on this. But broadly speaking, there tend to be two different kinds of conversations that you're having out there on the mound, right? There's the strategy conversation, which I think, especially at the big league level, tends to be more often than not what you're doing. You're going out there, you're talking about where this pitcher or where this hitter likes certain pitches, uh, where you might want to work, what your strategy is going to be for attacking this guy. Maybe this guy and the next guy, if you've got a a two batter strategy, because maybe you're working around this first hitter, stuff like that, right? There's strategy conversations. And then there are just basically what you might broadly call the mental conversations. There's the, hey, you know, we just just wanted to break it up a little bit. Wanted to give you a chance to to take a breath. And I've heard all kinds of fun stories. And those are, you know, it's a it's a sacred ground. Whether you're talking about out in the pen or or, or up on the mound, there there are certain things that if the players share them with us publicly, we'll share with you. But for the most part, uh, you know, and Bud Black has has basically said uh, many times, we'll ask, you know, what'd you say to so and so on the mound, for example, and and he'll say, well, that was for that was for Kyle or that was for Armand. That was, you know, and they, they don't always repeat. Sometimes they do. They, they let us know or they give us a general tenor. Uh, there was a time semi-famously a few years ago uh, in 17, I believe, when Freeland was throwing that uh, or the game before Freeland threw his near no hitter at Coors Field. And he was having a bad game and Buddy kind of went out and, and chewed him out a little bit and let him have it. And again, we didn't hear any specifics, but that does happen. There, it's it's rarer at the big league level. But yeah, it, there's either, you know, but sometimes it's just the most distracting stuff. I've heard everything from guys going out and just saying, hey, what are you doing later tonight? You know, what, what are we getting? Uh, have you seen any good movies lately? Hey, did you hear that song? Did you see that thing on Twitter? Uh, just kind of trying to get the pitcher to think about something else for a minute and then get them locked back in. Different catchers, different managers have different uh, philosophies and different uh, strategies for, and a lot of times with different pitchers, you, you know, you got to know what a guy is like. You get a, a sense of them, but most of the time they're talking strategy, 
But uh, unfortunately, the juiciest, most interesting stuff is probably the stuff that we're never going to fully get to hear. Or, or you'll hear guys talk about it, you know, once they've retired. Years later, they'll they'll tell you those kinds of stories, which is fun. Uh, we've got a couple of questions here about the TV situation, which I'm going to let you know uh, immediately that I'm going to be limited on. But uh, Mark says, you know, my biggest concern right now is the TV situation, shelling out $20 a month to MLB uh, just to watch. And yeah, I agree. And then somebody else, I was going to try to see if I find it. I don't, I don't see the other. Oh, Zach came in and, and mentioned having, you know, already cut the plug as they said that's not the cut the cord pull the plug cut the what do you do with the plugs and cords uh <laughs> saying that he's in the opposite boat because you know a 20 dollars a month subscription if that's all you're using it for is obviously less than paying like a hundred dollars for cable tv right and i think this is the exact like these two comments mark and zach i think very perfectly represent the two sides of the coin that uh, a lot of this sports stuff seems like they're a little bit stuck on because on the one hand, do you force people to buy uh, a cable package in order to get all that stuff? While it, it, most people used to have those things, it's becoming less and less. I am somebody who cut the plug and pulled the cord. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. <laughs> and, and, you know, have obviously I'm at almost all of the home games. And then there are ways of watching and following along with the away games. But the difficulty is in finding you know how much are people willing and or able to pay for a season of their team uh you know because yeah it is cheaper than buying a whole tv package but not if you already have the tv package and i i don't know what the answer to these things are this is definitely one of those questions that's above my pay grade uh i tweeted out a little bit you know, after the Denver Post wrote uh, about some of the possible options, they included the potential that Altitude might get involved. And I tweeted out that that was my favorite possibility. And then I had a number of people essentially tell me that that's almost zero percent. You know, if, if not, it's a less than one percent chance that that's going to happen. I just kind of like the way. Uh, that the folks over at Altitude tend to run. I'm friends with some people over there, and so I just think that that would be cool. But I ultimately have no idea. I do just want the games to be available. I think one of the frustrating things about, you know, just having the TV package was that you would still get, you know, blacked out of certain numbers of games per year. Or uh, if you're out of market, then you're totally screwed, Right. Um, and so, or in market now, I can't remember which way that, <laughs> that worked, but the, um, 
I so while I understand that most people for a lot of people an extra twenty dollar a month subscription like that's that's a lot in your budget. I one hundred percent understand that as somebody who just went through and cut a bunch of smaller subscriptions out of our budget, and you know we're already seeing the the plus sides to doing that. I get that twenty bucks a month is not, you know that's that's not nothing, um, but I do think that. At the very least, with that, you should get all of the games. And, you know, we don't want to end up in a situation like with the Avs and Nuggets where the games just aren't on TV, right, or or aren't available. And so while uh, 20 bucks a month is not great, uh, I do think it's not the absolute worst i i hope they you know can come up with something i i really do think hey here's what i'll say (laughs) and i love my friends in the tv business i probably know a lot more people honestly on the tv side of things on and off air talent a lot of camera people that are really awesome there's some really fantastic camera people that i hope in all of this end up landing on their feet and end up uh keeping to do the uh, to do the thing and i'll miss them down at Coors field if they're gone and same with the on-air talent i just think most of them the people you know drew goodman jeff houston jenny kavnar uh cory spilly like those guys i think they're all gonna end up you know still doing the thing i i hope so i really hope so i think they've got a pretty good thing going with that crew so i love all the tv people but i will say there is something unique and wonderful and magic about baseball on the radio and so if 20 bucks a month is too much for you find a radio get a radio tune it to the 850 koa listen into jack and jerry do their thing uh, there are also a lot of ways you can listen online and th- there's also an mlb app which i think is 20 bucks for the year um and and then you can listen to all the games on there and a lot of times you can if jack and jerry aren't your thing and i do enjoy those guys but one thing that can be interesting is listening to like the other team's broadcasts and getting their opinions on your guys that can be various degrees of frustrating or insightful but yeah you know while all this is getting sorted out and i do think whatever the solution is is likely to be temporary for at least a year or two here if you're frustrated by the the tv-ness of it all I would say listen to the games on the radio and then check out highlight clips online if you you really, you know, you got to see them. But a lot of times, like with the, so with the MLB app, uh, one of the things that's really nice about it is that they'll post highlight clips very quickly after things happen. So if there's a big play, like if you're listening and, you know, not much is going on, but in the third inning, Brenton Doyle makes some ridiculous diving catch and you hear the radio guys go nuts and you go, oh man, I didn't mind I was listening on the radio, but now I wish I'd been watching on TV because I missed that. They'll post a clip within minutes, typically. The app sometimes, like all apps, doesn't run perfectly. It has its issues. And believe me, I could talk for a while about the issues with the MLB app. But I will say there are worse ways to take in a ball game than you know listening on the radio, catching up with the clips on your phone, and then... I've done that several times and then watched a full version of the game uh, the next day or whatever. So, uh, you know, there, there are ways to get around it, but I do understand the frustration. I hope that was helpful in some ways, because like I said, I don't really know what's going on behind the closed doors, as it were. Oh, here's another question I don't have an answer to. 
<laughs> I have a little bit of an answer to this one. Sam asks, why have they not expanded their reach into Asia? Uh, they have that academy in the Dominican, but why not build that same idea in Asia? So like I started with, I don't 100% know the answer to this question now. I know for a long time, the baseline answer to your question was because it's expensive, uh, right? There's a lot more of a professional environment out there. And it used to be the case that even to talk to certain players, you had to post a pretty big dollar amount, right? And so it just wasn't something that the Rockies and a lot of smaller and mid-market teams were willing to do because the entry cost was just so high. Now, I'll admit that in the last couple of years, I haven't kept up on that specifically. I tried to do a little bit of research on this in the new CBA. It was very complicated for me. I, I'm going to try to ask around and see if I can get a better answer to this question in the future. Uh, not being around the team right now in the offseason. Normally when there's something like this and then I do some research and I can't figure it out, I just go and ask somebody smarter than me and then I get an answer of some kind. And then I say things like, well, I've talked to people in and around the organization and here's what they've, right? So, but I just don't know uh, what the deal is now. I I know that they've been very happy with their academy in the Dominican and that's churned out some pretty great results for them. But you know, I I can, in general, without knowing the specifics, agree with the idea that they should be more active in Asia without a full understanding of how much more expensive it might be. And I would imagine, ultimately, that money is just the answer to that question, as it seems to be the answer to so many in life. Brian asks... What do they do with Amador? Well, hopefully play him at second base and or shortstop in a couple of years. Or if he really is. So for those of you who don't know, and everyone listening to this knows, I guess. But Adiel Amador is the Rockies' top prospect. In fact, I did a video recently on Ezekiel Tovar and noted that he was the highest rated value player by a lot of the like, you know, value contract, war per dollar, those types of figures, right? of anyone on the Rockies' major league roster, but he's second in the entire organization to Amador, who has been a phenomenal hitter so far in the minors and is also an up-the-middle defender. And if you're going to have Tovar and Rogers, then where does he fit? Well, for one, and I hate saying this about Brendan Rogers because I love Brendan Rogers. I like admitted like all cards on the table. That is a quality human and I think a very talented ball player. And I always think that it's sad when a talent of that caliber gets derailed so much by injuries. And so I think it's just hard as as much as I pride myself on my you know objectivity and journalism in certain regards. I think you've also got to recognize that these guys are just human beings that you spend time around and you go, man, that said, he has had the injury issues. And so I don't think I would be in the business of trading any of those three, assuming that you're going to have the other, right? You don't trade Rodgers, assuming Amador is just going to be an instant smash at the big leagues, because as great as any minor leaguer is, you still have to prove it in the bigs, right? You're not moving on from Tovar right now, because he's just starting his journey of being the next Rockies great shortstop, it would appear. That's quite a rookie season he's coming off at such a young age, right? And I don't think you're trading 
Amador out of your system because what if Rodgers does continue to have these injury issues or never quite reaches the peak and, and just sort of pans out to be a one to two war player and maybe you keep him on the roster as a utility guy. Maybe you don't, but you you need to find a way to get more wins out of your roster in a couple of years. And Amador looks like he is ready to take over, right? So I think you've got to leave the door open for any of those possibilities. That said, this all comes with the one giant caveat of if anybody ever offers you really, truly great elite high-end pitching for any of these guys, you've got to consider taking it. Uh, any position player can be traded for the right pitching package. That's just the way it's got to be when you're the Rockies. You've got to go after any kind of controllable young pitching that you might be able to lock in for a while because it's so difficult to get here. But that said, I don't think you need to be out there shopping Amador, right? Because I think it's entirely possible that uh, Rogers, you know, it doesn't pan out with Rogers, and then you've got Amador as the heir apparent at second base, and you, you don't really miss much. You don't have a big drop off there. In fact, you might even experience an improvement at second base. If it turns out that Rogers is doing fantastic and Tovar is doing fantastic, and then Amador is ready, you can still debut a guy as, uh, you know, a utility guy recognizing that people get hurt. You, you're going to need backups. And especially while he's still young, you can make those decisions on the line. And then if it does turn out that all three are playing well and have proven themselves at the big league level, then I think you can make a trade. You, you can really start heavily shopping one of them. But I don't want to put the, the cart before the horse on that one. I think it's entirely possible that, uh, you know, Amador is here very, very quickly. But even then, it could be that it takes him a little bit longer in the minors than we realize so far. So, Keeping it in the minors, Tex asks about Zach Veen. Will we see him on the big league squad this year? I think so. Obviously, you've always got to have the caveat of health permitting here, right? Uh, especially coming off the year he is where he lost most of it to an injury. And he's going to need to get back to, hey, hey check it out, baseball idiom. The swing of things. He's got to get back into the swing of things. You, you need him healthy out there. That said, I do think from a physical and mental standpoint, he's going to be ready, if not close to ready. I think the Rockies have been aggressive with him leading up to the injury. I think they were very impressed with him last spring training, even though he wasn't putting up monster numbers. He was really making himself a factor in every game that he played. Uh, to, to use another old guy baseball term, he's an action player in so many ways, right? And so I, I do think that, uh, you know, we'll see him at some point. If Even if it's the long road and he doesn't look great in spring training and you've got to take all year, and even if he's not having a great year, I wouldn't be surprised if they still, because of his, you know, caliber of prospect status, particularly when they drafted him, if they call him up in September to get him that first taste of the big leagues. And finally... This question comes in from Dr. Coach, and I do appreciate everyone for asking all of your questions. And I've gotten various versions of this one before, but I've got a slightly different take on, on my answer this time. He asks, why should anyone care moving forward? When the messaging from the front office says we think we're a 500 team preseason while putting out a 100 loss team and making no offseason moves to better the situation several years in a row. Now, my previous answers to this question have always started with like the romantic, well, baseball's baseball and it's a beautiful game and you never know when a guy's going to make a diving catch or hit a monster home run or this, that, or the other, right? Or I could point to 
a lot of young players on the team that I do think are very exciting to watch and I do actually believe are in probably almost certainly not this year, but by 2025 going to be turning this team around guys like Nolan Jones, Brenton Doyle, Ezekiel Tovar, Zach Veen, uh, some combination. I still think one of like a Lowry's Montero, Hunter Goodman, Michael Tolia is going to work out. Right. So I could get into the nitty gritty on, on young players who might turn this around, but I, I can see you not to put words in your mouth specifically, Dr. Coach, but one, who would ask this question? Why even care? Because I've gotten this response to when I talk about the team specifically, right? And say, well, okay. So let's say that then the Rockies do get good in 25 and 26, but then aren't they just going to totally blow it by pissing off Nolan Jones and trading Brenton Doyle and, you know, this guy or that guy is going to get upset with them and demand a trade, right? All, all the things that have had happened in the past and have destroyed potentially much better windows of success for this team. And one, I would say, well, yeah, that's always a possibility. Can't happen. Does happen. But I think for me, the biggest reason for, I don't know if hope is the right word, uh, to, to use your word for why you should care is that this is a new era as much as people want to believe that because it's owned by the same person that it's not. And there will always be those issues. Absolutely. I don't want to hand wave Dick Monfort as a problem. But I also don't believe, and in fact, I'm fairly sure based on observation and conversation, that he is not nearly as involved, especially on a day-to-day -day basis, as people tend to think. I think, and I may be wrong about this, but a lot of the things that people are most rightly concerned about that blew up that last era in particular angering of Nolan Arenado, the failure to re-sign DJ LeMahieu, all, all of that stuff, not getting any free agents or making any trades during that era that really improved the team's chances of success. I would say 70 to 80% of that does fall on Jeff Breidich. You can say, well, it's Dick Monfort's fault for putting him there in the first place. Indeed. Which means that it does matter who's there in the first place. Right. We can all agree. And this is what I, I think has really gotten away from this conversation and where I have been most sort of befuddled by the way we talk about it, because I do understand that the Rockies are an institution. They're just a thing. And so while there's a lot of stuff that Bill Schmidt, the new GM, has not done or said, he is sort of responsible in so many ways for the fact that it has been what the team has done for so long. Any mistake that he does make, and he's made several so far, most especially the Chris Bryant thing, right? That is on him. That is absolutely Bill Schmidt's job. Now, that's clearly something the owner is in on too, but still, you got to lay that at the feet of the GM. Beyond that, I would say that this guy, Schmidt, is a smart baseball man 
who really cares about winning and really cares about the Rockies, and thus far has been pretty open and honest with the media, which marks a dramatic change from how Jeff Breidich was. And I was often seen as a Jeff Breidich defender, uh, you know, of certain moves or, or this, that, or the other. I think it's tough once those relationships become poisonous and toxic to to pull it back, right? And I think it just became very toxic with the media very quickly with Jeff Breidich. And it, it led to a lot of ugliness. But I also think that in life, you've got to give people an opportunity to be who they're going to be. I have seen up close Bill Schmidt get an opportunity to do the job. And I don't think that you can take the situation that he was handed and reasonably turn it all around in a season or two. And I think if you try to turn it all around in a season or two, you're just going to make yourself a perennial loser. Now, you may be saying that's exactly what the Colorado Rockies are, and I would say yes, but there are many different ways to achieve that. Uh, you know, as much as I'm often accused of being an optimist, one of my guiding principles in life is it can always get worse. You can go much longer without experiencing the postseason than the Rockies have in the last couple of decades. Just ask the Seattle Mariners, or the Baltimore Orioles, or the Kansas City Royals, or the Pittsburgh Pirates. Those are all in my lifetime. I realize that's getting less and less impressive the older I get. <laughs> but, okay. So back to the original question. Because as much as I do think a new era of a new GM and these new players, none of whom were around for any of the Arenado drama, you know, you've still got a couple of holdovers. Obviously, Charlie Blackman's still there, right? But here is my super weird, ambiguous, but still specific to a moment in time answer for you. I've been covering this team for 10 years. This will be my 11th or this will be my 12th. I'll have to do the math some other time, but around there, right? And there have been a lot of Rockies teams who inside the clubhouse were pretty buttoned up, you know, decent guys, not particularly exuberant or whatever. There have been some teams where they had a weird mix, like 17 and 18, they had a weird mix of guys who were very outgoing and lighthearted, like Gerardo Parra and Carlos Gonzalez, and this flip side of guys who were really super serious, like Nolan Arenado, Trevor Story, and that's actually been the Rockies throughout their history. Todd Helton was a pretty serious guy uh, in a lot of ways, right? They've had these very kind of serious, yeah, Charlie Blackman is that way in a lot of ways. I know a lot of people see like Chuck Nasty on TV or in certain commercials and the big beard and the walk-up song, but in that clubhouse, he can be very intense. He can be very serious. He's all about baseball, right? But halfway through this year, after so, so since the Nolan Arenado thing, it's just been miserable in there. It's just been a black cloud over everybody for years, right? But about halfway through this last season, really coming out of the all-star break, they just had a new vibe. So that's the ambiguous part of it, right? The specific thing I've got for you is, look, this is a different team. And I know how tempting it is to just say, well, they're going to Rockies it up, right? But I think one of the reasons why I tend not to live inside that mindset is because I don't 
look at the laundry quite so much as I look at the guys. You know, Nolan Jones is going to do what Nolan Jones is going to do. Brent Doyle is going to do what Brent Doyle is going to do. Tovar, McMahon, Rogers, Freeland, Marquez, and Sensatello when they get back, right? These guys, ultimately, it comes down to the talent and mental makeup of the 26 guys who put on the jersey and go out there and do it. And we look for these big patterns and systemic answers. And a lot of times things are systemic and, and we have to have those conversations. But at some point, why should anyone care? Well, for me at the very least, it's because these guys care and they're hungry for it and they're getting better. And for me, one of the most fun things to do in sports, because I've lived in Colorado my whole life and championships aren't... Co- if you've only lived here the last couple of years, you might think we win championships all the time. The Nuggets and Habs <laughs> winning championships for you. But they're they're not very common out here, right? You're, you're not going to have a ton of championship seasons. But there are a lot of things in sports that can be really, really fun to watch. And for me, one of the most fun things to watch is young players and then a collectively young team coming together, figuring themselves out, becoming the best versions of themselves, and reaching stardom. And I think that that is the biggest reason because I think the same way you might have looked at the roster in sixteen and 15 and 16 and said, who the heck are these guys? What is an Arenado? Trying to spell DJ LeMahieu in the early days? Charlie Blackman was seen as a fourth outfielder? John Gray, Armen Marquez, Kyle Freeland were all just seen as minor leaguers who were almost certainly never going to pan out because the Rockies never get pitchers that pan out from the minor leagues, right? But it didn't play out that way. Some of those guys became superstars here. And I truly believe that we're on the precipice of that. While I think it's going to take them until 25 into 26 to be more competitive and successful and start getting back into the postseason. I do think we're going to see in these next couple of years what we were seeing in 15 and 16, which is things like the emergence of Trevor Story, right? And and those kinds of fun uh, storylines that were going on. And with guys like Doyle, Tovar, the guys I've been talking about all show, and I'll finish up on, that's what I think is the reason to watch. Some of these guys are going to become superstars. Some of these guys are going to become face of the franchise type of players who are going to be here for the next 10 plus years and end up challenging for some of these, if not Todd Helton records, some of the Charlie Blackman (laughs) second place records, right? And who knows? You never know. It wasn't a foregone conclusion that Todd Helton was going to become what he was going to become. And that really is the silver lining when the team has had so many losses and they have so few guys on the major league roster who are established veterans who can help you win is that they're going to have a lot of these guys come up over the next couple of years and see if they can prove themselves. And I personally think some of them are going to, and that's going to be a lot of fun to watch. And then that tends to lead into those windows. And then I think we can start having the conversation of how do they not screw it up this time, (laughs) which will be a very important conversation to have. But in the meantime, If you can enjoy that ride to how do they go from the bottom and they are at the bottom, right? To a team that maybe in a couple of years is one of the more fun teams in baseball to watch because everyone's six foot five, super fast, has a cannon of an arm and can hit a 480 foot homer because they got a lot of those guys. Some of them already on the roster. Some of them coming up through the system. 
Like I said, you got to pitch, though. It all comes down to the fine nuances. How do you throw off somebody's timing with a well-placed changeup? <laughs> it's a weird game, folks, but I love it. I'm glad to be talking back, uh, back talking about it, I should say. Good way to finish your first podcast back in a little while with a verbal flub. But we're going to be doing more of these. I talked for a little while because you guys had such fantastic questions. I really do appreciate it. I hope you'll do it again sometime. And keep being absolutely awesome out there. I'll keep being absolutely Drew Creaseman in here. And until next time, I will see you at the ballpark.